and often told work for business. David O'Sullivan is a well-known broadcaster and is the author of the book Russie, Stories of Life and Rugby. And it's, of course, about the South African director of rugby, Russie Erasmus, who's again in the news. Um, hi, David. So nice to speak to you. It's good to be with you on Business News, Linda. Thank you. So can we start off by how did you come to write Russie's story? I have been... Uh... Courting, flirting with the publisher, Pan Macmillan, for some time, uh, discussing various ideas for projects, um, none of which really come lit by jets in any way. And um, then this opportunity came about. Pan Macmillan had been in discussion with Russi for about a year, trying to nail him down. Russi had this belief that he didn't have a story to tell. And he's not a books person, so it didn't really it didn't blip on his radar. Uh, when I met him, he said to me, uh, "I've only ever read one book in my life, and that was Lord of the Flies at school." And um, by then, the deal was done. And I said to him, "Well, Russie, you know, you're going to have to have read a second book, which is your own book." Uh, and he's now read it three times. So I I joke with him. I said I say to him, "You've now read four books in total," but. Um, uh, my name was submitted to Rassi, and Rassi, being a guy who hyper-focuses on rugby to the exclusion of almost all else, he uh, knew me from my career as a journalist, and I had done in the past. I worked at SABC Sport. I'm mainly known for my radio, but I, I did a lot of television as well. So a super sport world or a DSTV world isn't familiar with the fact that I actually worked for the SABC for 12 years, and I presented a rugby show. And I did some writing for SA Rugby magazine, and Russie consumes as much as he can. So he saw uh, the, the show and knew about me and said, well, let's go for it. He, interestingly, he didn't want a rugby writer. He felt the rugby writers themselves were probably too close to the action. He wanted a bit more of a dispassionate, detached view. And so I got the gig, um, and it took all of, of a split second when Pan Macmillan phoned and said, would you be interested in writing this book for me to decide this is a project I want to do? What I found fascinating, and I just finished the book last night, is that it's written in the first person, but you wrote it, but I can actually hear Russie's voice, especially when the Afrikaans comes through, the bit of swearing comes through. How did you do that? That, that makes my heart leap for joy, Linda, that you're going to hear Russie's voice, because for me that was probably... Amongst, well, there were many challenges, but that was one of the biggest of the challenges, was to find Rassi's voice. It got easier the longer I worked with him. So initially, it was quite problematic. And uh, I had wonderful people at Pan Macmillan uh, working, who I was working with, particularly uh, a woman called Andrea Natras, who's got just the sharpest eye and ear. I mean, all her instincts are so finely honed as to what makes a good book or not. And in those initial uh, submissions of, of drafts, she was able to say, but that doesn't sound like Rassi and that doesn't sound like Rassi. So I couldn't put any kind of clever writing, flowery writing, because that's not the way he speaks. But the longer I worked with it, and we worked intensely, we'd have two or three days in a row where we would sit and meet and we would talk. And we would do eight hours in a stretch. Rassi never wanted breaks. Once we started... He just wanted to keep going. So I was just extracting stories from him all the time to the extent that after a, a, a prolonged sessions with him, his voice was in my head. I would wake up at 3 o'clock in the morning 
and I could hear Russi talking. And so it then became easier and easier to write in his voice. So I would take huge tracts of dialogue, which were transcribed by a wonderful transcriber named Vivian Ray. And I would sit with the transcriptions on one screen and my blank manuscripts uh, on another screen. And I would panel beat the, uh, the, 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 the transcript. But there would sometimes be so much dense work that I'd have to summarize it. And that's where now hearing Russi's voice, I was able then to express it in the way that it appears in the book. Some mates of mine have said every night again, they feel that they can see a, a Davidism in, in the scripts and that, that almost like a dagger to my heart. You're not supposed to see that. You're supposed to hear Russi. So what was the timeline? You, you talk about these long sessions. How long did you spend with him? How long did it take to write the book? Uh, it took, I started working with him at the end of January because he had gone to Mauritius on a holiday with his family. And my first deadline was the end of April to get um, 100,000 words, well, 80,000 words in, which was, it did, it did keep me up at night uh, worrying about it. Um, and in the end, I, I think the book's about 105,000 words. So I, I was over the mark from the 80,000 initial deadline. But mercifully, thankfully, uh, the publishers decided to keep the extra in and just make it a, a bigger book. I think they were looking for a 250-page book, and we came in at 300 pages. The deadlines were incredibly tight, and friends of mine who had written books had said to me that there's no way we were going to, I was going to hit that target and get that deadline because it was too short. I have no idea. And so I just decided to stick my head down. But I think, Linda, the reason why I was able to hit the target was not because I'm diligent or any laudable trait. It's because it was such an enjoyable experience that it never, ever felt like work. So working on a Saturday or on a Sunday, working late at night or early in the morning was never a burden. And in fact, I found myself to be most productive if I wrote in the morning. I'd wake up at 3 o'clock in the morning and Rusty's voice was going around on in my head. I made the mistake once of lying awake, listening to it and thinking about how I would construct that, that day's work and what sections I was going to do and what additional information I needed to pull together to make that section work. Then went back to sleep, woke up in the morning, got the kids ready, got them off to school and sat down in front of my computer and went, what, did, what was I going to do again? And I'd forgotten. So I said, I'm never doing that again. So at three o'clock, when his voice is going around in my head, I would then go down to my study and I would start working. And by the time my wife was getting up and the kids were getting up, I'd already nailed 3,000 words of 4,000 or 5,000, which was my target for the day. So then the whole burden of the day was lifted. And I think that's why I was able to power on and get the book in um, on time. And it as I say, it never felt like work. It was always such an enormous pleasure. What did you discover? Because many people think they know the public uh, Rossi, who is can be rather controversial and he pushes boundaries. What, what did you find? What is he like as a person? He, I found him to be rather shy um, and introverted. We met at the Grendel Wine Farm um, early in, in mid-January. Mid to sound each other out and just to make sure that this was going to be a, a decent enough working relationship. 
And an hour meeting turned into a three-hour meeting of the two of us just yakking away to one another. Um, and I realized then I was expecting this flamboyant, extroverted, charismatic, mm, yeah. devil-may-care, <laughs> friends-with-the-entire-universe type of person. And I noticed there that he wants to be away, uh, secluded, away from people. And I thought it's maybe because he doesn't want people constantly coming up to him and him having to respond. But as I got to know him, I realized that's actually his nature. He is a very, very shy man. And he is he has this amazing ability to mask his shyness through a semblance of, of, of being an extrovert. But actually, what Rassi would prefer to do is not really engage with that many people and just have his, his computer and his videos and his analysis. And that's where he's at home, analyzing rugby, strategizing about rugby. He's a very introverted person. He, he, he doesn't like um, social environments. He's not that comfortable in them. And he prefers to be very much on his own with his computer, analyzing rugby. Um, if he's going to have discussions with anybody, it's about rugby. He doesn't do chit-chat. He doesn't do small talk. And he doesn't do much conversation outside of uh, his field of expertise and what he's focusing on. And it's not rudeness or anything. It's just his personality. And I realized that quite quickly. But he, he hyper-focuses on the things that are important to him at that time. So when we were working on the book, that was all his attention was on, was telling the stories about his life that were relevant for the book. And I would, on occasion, grill him. I was extracting minute detail out of him to the extent I, I needed to know what the weather was like that day just because it gives you a little, uh, uh, the reader, a sense of things. These minute details sometimes have big impacts. And we never met in public places uh, because Rassi is not comfortable in those places. He would come and meet me if I was down in Stellenbosch where he was doing training camps and I'd stay at a hotel there. He'd sometimes meet me for breakfast, but I could see he was, it, it wasn't what he liked doing. So in the end, we, we, we didn't do that. We'd meet at his office at Saru House, um, where he was comfortable, and the people around him make him comfortable. And then uh, we, could, we could chat endlessly. So um, I think the short answer to your question is, I expected a, a loud, charismatic man, and I found a shy, introverted man, and he's a much nicer man for it. What's he like when all these people come up to him? He's so generous. He's so gracious. Um, so there was one occasion where he and I, it was the one and only time where we worked together that he said, let's go and have some lunch. And we uh, met in a restaurant and he was, now typically I didn't realize it at the time, he was away in a corner and sitting with his back to everybody and nobody was noticing him. And But a young kid had walked past and had seen him and then come into the restaurant and I could see this youngster. He must have been about 15 or 16 years old standing at the side, and he was plucking up the courage to come over. So I said to Rossi, oh, there's a fan over there. And he turned and he saw this young boy, and he beckoned him over. Mm. Look at this youngster was shaking. It was so emotional. He was shaking and so excited. And he didn't come and say, let me take a selfie and can I get your autograph? He just came over and he said, ik wil net voor I just want to shake your hand. And Rassi said, yeah, come sit, 
and the two of them had a little conversation, what school you at? And and then this youngster left, just so happy. I think he was almost in tears. And then I realized, no, we hadn't taken a photograph. And he was going to go home and say, Mark, oh, you can't believe who I met, Rassi Rasmus. Yes, of course you did. So we called him back and said, let's get a photograph. And so he took his photograph. But there was um, a, a woman, we were walking down the road in Stellenbosch. Uh, we went to go and buy some batteries. And a, a lovely, a garrulous, colored woman came over and said, uh, and she came and she just powered into him and gave him a big hug. And he was saying, donkey, 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 and moved on awkwardly, but with generosity. So how does that personality gel with the one that he says he's a party animal? And he talks about his wild drinking days. Yes, so he definitely was uh, that. And I, 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 I can't rationalize it, but it's true. I, I, um, it does seem at odds. But um, I, I, it could be that he was um, masking his insecurities um, at the time. Who knows? But yes, he did go through a phase when he came up and played for uh, the Cats, as the team was called. And he did have um, a, a quite a, a problematic time with uh, the partying. Um, and a life, he led a life of excess, and he makes no bones about it. And he understood that it had a, a detrimental effect on him as a as a person, and that he needed to get out. And he uh, his expression is the lahi set by Hafang. The lights got to me, and he eventually said to the coach, um, "I I need to go back to free state, to this smaller world where he could actually cope with life a lot better." Than he was coping with life in Johannesburg. He took an enormous cut in salary. The profile wasn't the same. He was battling with injury, but he knew that if he continued in this wild way, he would um he was he was going on a path of destruction. When he started listing all the stuff that happened to him, he talks about more than thirty operations and he's still battling with illness. I mean, yes. is that the normal life of a rugby player? I think it's an extreme. Um, it's it's the oddest thing uh, to have that that many injuries. But he he has been dreadfully unlucky. Um, one of his main injuries that really brought about the end of his career was a foot injury, which he, he suffered uh, in a, a routine training exercise. So it was the start of a season. He had left the Cats. He joined Free State, and it was at a preseason warm up session. The, the guy fell in front of him. He jumped over him, landed awkwardly and had a foot fracture that went undiagnosed for an incredibly long time. So he was living on painkillers. He and his mentor, uh, Fricky Erasmus, no relation, they flew out to Adidas where they were, he was examined there. They made special shoes for him. And eventually, they, when they came back to South Africa, after a while of nothing getting better and him playing in pain or pain, playing with painkillers that uh, masked the, the problem, didn't solve the problem, he then saw a surgeon who saw this hairline fracture. He had the surgery and it was fixed, but it, the damage had been done and he, his body has gone through a rack and ruin. His hands are incredible. He's got arthritis now in his fingers and he, he can't hold a golf club properly because of it. But he is so resilient um, and it does speak about a person who is able to overcome enormous obstacles and this is physical pain being the obstacle in order to do the thing that you love but Wechner's disease um, is something he's got it's a chronic illness he's yep. gonna live with it all his life it's the inflammation of the blood vessels in whatever part of the body 
uh, Vachner's disease gets you. And for Rossi, unfortunately, it's in his throat. So his throat will start constricting and he would battle with breathing. And in the 70s, when the understanding of treatment for Vachner's disease wasn't as sophisticated as it is now, Vachner's disease had um, quite a high mortality rate. And so he's on um, a course of, of medication which solved the problem, but it's a course of medication he will remain on for his, the rest of his life. Sometimes the cortisone that he has to take puffs him up. He has to pee a lot. He's embarrassed about it, but he's learned to live with it. And he's very open about it so that people don't get embarrassed for him. Embarrassment, Linda, is a big thing for, for Rassi. He needs to avoid embarrassment. He needs to avoid embarrassing people. And it has motivated so much of what he has done in his career, this notion of embarrassment. Transformation has come about because of embarrassment and humiliation for those who are at the receiving end of the unfairness of, uh, of transformation or the lack thereof. Um, and so it's, it's an interesting dynamic. So why does Rossi want to tell his story now? He's not finished his career. Oh, dear. That is a, a question I haven't been asked before, um, and I don't know the answer. It wasn't something we canvassed. It was more a case of, uh, I think, a publishing decision that in order to capitalize on uh, interest around the World Cup, let's get a story out now so that there's Rossi's top of mind. I think it's the, the, the adage of uh, the interest is there while you're, at, while you're prominent. If we'd written it once the story was all done and dusted, people may not have been as interested. But we wrote the story um, on the back of the second ban. He got banned twice. <laughs> and so the controversy of Rossi was still very much there. Um, we were riding the wave of the 2019 World Cup. If he wins... Sorry, when he wins the World Cup in 2023, I'm not sure if there's then another chapter to be added to the book. But I think that everything in the book will tell you why they won in 2019 and won again in 2023. So I'm going to be optimistic about that. Because all the building blocks, all the, all the pieces of the puzzle, if I can mix those metaphors, have been put in place and detailed in the book. And so you can understand why and how things are working now if you read the book. For example, um, in the game against uh, Scotland, the opening game for South Africa of the World Cup, uh, you could see Russi and Felix Jones, his assistant coach, holding up coloured lights. And I'm amused on social media to see that this is causing a bit of an uproar. But if you read the book, you find that using coloured lights is nothing unusual for Russi. He coached a free state to great success took them to two Curry Cup victories using that exact system. And he told me when we were writing the book that he was going to use the lights, but asked me not to put it in the book because he wanted it to be a surprise. But for anybody who goes, well, what on earth are the lights? There's a whole section of the book that explains the lights. But today on Twitter, um, I, there's already people saying, oh, should this be allowed? So is this, an, again, Rossi getting into a controversy? Yeah, and I don't think he anticipates that it would be a controversy simply because it's there's no sanction against that. There's nothing that he's working against. In the same way, when he was a director of rugby um, during the British and Irish Lions tour, and he became the water boy, uh, there was no law that said you can't the water boy the director of rugby can't be a water boy. The law said 
the coach couldn't be the water boy. They've now amended that law and made the director of rugby also ineligible to carry the water. So they made a law specifically to stop Rassi from exploiting their own lack of procedure. And I wouldn't be surprised if suddenly they start saying, oh, you can't use the colored lights. But they use radios, walkie-talkies, hand gestures. All of these things are used. It's so amusing for me to see on social media that people had no idea that coaches were communicating with players during a game. I think, what did you think was going on? Why do you think they were using microphones and wearing headsets? It's all about communication. And this is a much easier way, as Jacques Nienaber said at the news conference, in these stadiums, there's so much noise, you sometimes can't get a message to the players. So just use a light. Simple as that. Yeah, well, I, I see on on Twitter, they are sort of asking people's opinion, should it be used? So you're probably right. That that's another rule they're going to change sort of midway to stop Rassi from doing that. It'll be ridiculous if they do. But Rassi's got this very simple philosophy that if you need to do something, if you want something to happen differently, you've got to do something differently. And he is always able to think out of the box. But he's always amazed. He doesn't see it as out-the-box thinking. He th- his, his way of rationalizing this or, or, or trying to explain it is, what, why hasn't anybody else thought of it? Because it's, it's pretty obvious that you should be able to do these things. So for him, it's no big deal that he happens to be the first one to think of these things uh, each time. It, it, the same was true when um, he was analyzing play using... VHS machines and and analyzing the opposition. Uh, nobody else was doing it. Certainly, no players were doing it. But Rossi was doing it. And he said, "But why? Why wasn't anybody else doing it? it? Wasn't as if they didn't have the skills or the expertise or there was a rule against it. But he was the first, and he's been the first to do all of these things that have now become just common calls." Were there things that he told you that surprised you? Because he told you very personal details about his father being an alcoholic and how he experienced it. There was one particular part that really did surprise me. Um, the, the alcoholic father, the depths to which we went into that was quite surprising and, and deeply emotional. I did hear Rossi when we were doing a, a rollout of media interviews and he was, being, he was chatting to a journalist and I heard him saying that the process of writing this book had felt like therapy. And I thought, yeah, that, that particular section was quite a lot like therapy as we just kept delving into what it meant, how he felt, how he dealt with it, um, with the alcoholic father. But here's the bit that really did surprise me. When we came to the talking about the British and Irish Lions tour, in the third test, which was the deciding test match, they'd won the first one, South Africa had won the second one. The third one, third and final one, was the decider who wins the series. He picked Mornay Stain, an aging Springbok who 12 years earlier had kicked a winning penalty, which secured the Lions series in that year. Now he had been out of international rugby for five years. He had been playing for the Bulls with great um, skill and prominence. And Rossi brought him back into the fold and brought him on in the and picked him for the third test. He hadn't been picked for the first two, picked him on the bench for the third test. And on he came. And in the dying minutes, repeated the heroics of 12 years earlier, kicked penalty, which won South Africa the series. A remarkable story. And I said, why did you do that? And he said, because I saw it. So I said, oh, you had a hunch. He said, no, I 
I saw it, and I couldn't understand it. And Linda, this is the bit where you say, did anything surprise me? This surprised me that he had this, these visions. Now, I don't believe in that kind of stuff. I don't believe visions occur. And he said, let's leave it out because people will think I'm mad. But I couldn't let go of a story as wonderful as that. And I said, no, we've got to, we've got to dig into this. We need a way to talk about it. So he said, ah, I know what to do. Let's get Jacques in. So we were at Saru House at his office, and he uh, just got on the phone and said, Jacques, won't you pop up here? Jacques Nienamba came in and said, go and ask him the question. I said, well, how did, why did you pick a Mornay stain? And Jacques burst out laughing. He said, oh, it's the visions. And then told me three stories about Rassi having visions, seeing things that will happen that then happened. But, but Jacques said, please understand, I'm a man of science. I can't explain this. And nobody can explain it, but he has these visions. He sees things, he has premonitions of things happening that then do happen. Now, I don't believe in premonitions, but I can't explain this. I think it's a wonderful story, and we stuck it in the book and gave it some prominence, and that did surprise me. How do you think, this book is obviously loved by South Africans. I mean, I've already spoken to people who've read it, and they love it. How would it be received overseas, do you think? I, it's early days. Um, it only came out in the UK um, the previous Friday, and I, I believe that sales are going well. I'm anticipating, as you well know, Linda, there's a large expat community in London, and they might be snapping it up. We had one review so far in the Guardian newspaper, a newspaper of some significance and prominence, and it was the most glowing review, uh, which was fantastic. And I, uh, though it was written by a man called Donald McRae, one of the biggest sports writers, most prominent sports writers in the UK, he is a former South African. He left South Africa in the uh, early 80s. His father, coincidentally, or just for trivia's sake, not even coincidentally, used to be the CEO of ESCOM, where ESCOM was a functioning utility. But Donald wrote a, a wonderful review of the book and interviewed Rassi for the review and understood the nuances of South African life and, and captured what Rassi wanted to achieve in the book really, really well. His concern, Rassi's concern, is that after he made the video that criticized Nick Ferry, after he was the water boy, and after he got the bands, he found himself quite isolated and maligned. And his sister, who lives in, um, in Reading in the UK, has lived there for 20 years, she felt that her family was the only family in the whole of the UK who loved Rassi. Everybody else hated him. And I see on social media, people would refer to him as a cheat, where in fact, he has never actually cheated. He brought the game into disrepute through the Erasmus video, and he is deeply, deeply regretful about it. But my anticipation is that people don't like to have their minds changed. And unless they read the book, um, they will continue on the path of, we, we hate this guy and we're not going to buy the book. I would like the detractors to read the book and possibly see another version of events and understand that the way he did things was maverick and different, but wasn't cheating and possibly their minds can be changed. And of course, I want to ask you, you said a little bit about your prediction for the World Cup. So I 
uh, I'm terrible at predicting things. I would I would like to say that it's going to be a Springbok France final. But if you had said to me before the Argentina England game there there in the opening week of the tournament that England with 14 men playing as badly as they have been against Argentina playing as well as they have been that England would trounce Argentina I would have said there's no chance in hell that that would happen that is in fact what did happen and I realize my abilities to predict anything are null and void I also used to present horse racing Durban July and JNB met on TV when I did had my TV career I could make a case for every single horse to win that race in the same way I could make a case for six teams to win this World Cup. It's useless to even predict. But then I have actually predicted it's going to be a South Africa-France final and South Africa will win. There you go. <laughs> um, last question. How, how do you think history will judge Rassi? I hope that history will judge Rassi as the man who brought out effective, brought about effective transformation in South Africa. He's not a political beast. And he isn't guided by political masters, as so many people accuse him. He is guided by a deep uh, sense of humanity and this desire to avoid humiliation and embarrassment. And as a result of that, he embarked on a transformation program that has been so effective. And we saw the youngsters on the field against Scotland in the World Cup against England in 2019 the players who came through that development program called the Elite Players Development Pathway, the EPD, with such great success that his legacy is the Elite Players Development Pathway. My great fear, Linda, is that when Rassi leaves, that the attention on the EPD will fall away and that it the, the program will dissolve. And this wonderful network of coaches and scouts and people dedicated to the well-being of rugby will fracture and fall apart. But this is the path that is finding the kids who otherwise wouldn't get the opportunities or giving them the opportunities, and it's up to them to seize them. It's allowing the kids who go to elite schools and are given all the opportunities to still have a relevance in rugby. Nobody is excluded. The only thing you are excluded on is the number of players who can play for a team. There are 23 and if you're not good enough to be in the 23, it's not through some kind of political discrimination. It's that there was somebody who was better than you. And if that's the only uh, criteria, that's the one we want. But nobody now is discriminated because they're white and can't play because of quotas or black and can't play because they've never had the opportunities. All of that is being flattened. And so everybody can compete on an equal footing. And that for me, is the genius of Rassi Erasmus. Yeah, and he keeps on saying that he's not political and the decision to make Sia Kulisa the captain was never political. It was never. In, in fact, I'll tell you exactly how that came about. He sat down and he, he picked his team. He had known Sia Kulisi since Sia was uh, 17 years old. He knew exactly what this, this guy was capable of doing. And he knew that in that position at flank, he was the right player for that position. He picked his team to play England in 2018. Sia was in the team. Sia had been uh, selected by uh, Alistair Kutsia before him, but uh, Rassi had worked with Sia at the Western Province Academy and had even made sure that he signed for Western Province 
after having found that he had signed for Free State, but they found a flaw in the contract and managed to get him out of it and brought him back again. But now he's got to pick a captain. So he looks at his list. He's got his 23, and he goes, right, my captain, who's the previous captain? Eben Etzebeth, he's injured. Who else is captain of the Springboks? Warren Whiteley, he's injured. Dwayne Vermeulen, he's been, he's, he's could be a candidate for captaincy, but he's playing in France. He, the players don't know him as well. He wanted somebody who was playing in South Africa, who'd been a captain, but is somebody who can have access to the referee. He wants the person to be able to talk to the referee and hear the referee. So he's got to be either a prop, a lock, or a loose forward, or a scrum half. So he looks at his list and he goes, who meets all of those criteria? Ah, Sia. Sia captains the Stormers. He's a flanker. He's going to be near the, 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 the referee. I'll make Sia the captain. Never once did he think, I'm picking the first black captain. And it came as a huge surprise. Now, the problem is that people don't want, there are some people who don't want to believe this. If you want to believe that Rassi is a political animal, you'll say rubbish. But these are the facts. That's actually what happened. And if you go to Sir Khaleesi and ask him or even read his book, you'll find it's the same version of events. And then I know that the conspiracy theorists say they colluded on it. That's also nonsense. This, the the simpler explanation is the correct one. He did not know what he was doing in picking Sia as his first black captain. He just knew he was picking the right person to be the captain. Ah, David O'Sullivan, it was so nice speaking to you. Thanks for speaking to us, News. It's been an absolute pleasure, Linda. Thank you so much. Mm-hmm.